Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. People want to come to Jesus because they see him as a means of improving their situation, whatever it might be. But you can't come to him on those grounds. Now, let me be clear. He certainly will improve your situation, but that cannot be the basis upon which you come to him. You have to come to him for who he is. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his series, Jesus Encounters. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on John chapter 12, verses 20 through 23, as he examines an encounter between Jesus and the seekers. Now, here's Pastor Brian. So we come today to looking at this uh, interesting situation where John tells us that certain Greeks came inquiring, wanting to know if they could have a meeting with Jesus. And so we see an example of uh, people who, who come as, as seekers. So we're going to look at it from that standpoint today. I want to just first of all say that regarding this story, John is the only one of the gospel writers who records this story. And the significance of that is, I think, connected to the fact that John throughout his gospel seems to always be reminding us of the universal nature of the salvation of Christ. John wrote his gospel after the other three gospels had already been written. Nobody knows exactly how much time transpired between those other three and John, but almost everybody agrees that John wrote his later. And John obviously knew the content of those other gospels and some, there's some overlap between those Gospels and John's Gospel. But John, it, it's like he really specifically wanted to get a universal message out. And he wanted everybody to understand that Jesus wasn't only the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the Jewish people, that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. And one writer wrote this in regard to the Greeks coming. He said, the fact that the Greeks had reached the point of wanting to meet Jesus showed that the time had come for him to die for the world. He no longer belongs to Judaism, which in any case had rejected him, but the world whose savior he is awaits him and seeks him. And that's what we see as we see these Greeks coming to him. So these men that, that John identifies as Greeks come to him. Now, it's interesting that John identifies them as Greeks. And, and that, I think, tells us something about them that might not be obvious on the surface. They could have been proselytes, but they probably weren't. And the reason I doubt that they were proselytes is because I think John would have either clarified that or he might not have even told the story because proselytes were fairly common. There were people that converted from Greek religion, Roman religion, uh, other religions to Judaism. Uh, some others say, well, they were probably God-fearers. And a God-fearer was in a different category than a proselyte. A proselyte was a full convert. A God-fearer was a person who acknowledged 
the one true God of Israel as being the Lord, but didn't want to go all the way to the point of conversion. Conversion, remember, in those days for the males included uh, circumcision. And so they would stop short of that. So they were happy to sort of believe in the God of Israel from a, from a bit of a distance, a, a genuine belief, but nevertheless, they didn't make the, the transition all the way over to a convert. Or the third possibility, and John referring to them as Greeks, and this is what I think is actually happening. The third is the possibility that they were simply seekers. And the reason why I think this is probably the case is twofold. Number one, it's because this was, this was very much the, the behavior of the Greeks. And secondly, uh, Jesus does not give them the audience that they're seeking. And for that reason, it seems to me that they were maybe, they're more out of curiosity than anything. Now, this was part of the, almost like the DNA of, of the Greeks. One writer put it this way, William Barclay, he said, the Greek was the inveterate wanderer, driven by wanderlust and the desire to find out new things. So the Greek was not just a wanderer. He was characteristically a seeker of the truth, Barclay says. He says, it was not unusual to find a Greek who had passed through philosophy after philosophy, religion after religion, and gone from teacher to teacher in search of the truth. The Greek was the man with the seeking mind. So I think that these Greeks that came to see Jesus were, were really just that more than anything else. They were just out to find out some new things and they had heard about Jesus. Now, I wanna look at the request of the Greeks and then I wanna look at the response of Jesus to them. So here's the request. Sirs, we want to meet with Jesus. So what they were asking is they were asking for a private meeting with Jesus. They, they wanted to sit down and have a conversation with him. And just, a, it's an interesting bit of a side note. It says in verse 21, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip then came and he told Andrew. Now, they probably approached Philip because they, they recognized that Philip was one of the close followers of Jesus. He was one of the apostles, but he had a Greek name. And so they figured, well, if we're going to get in to talk to Jesus, let's go to the Greek guy, or at least the guy who's identifying with Greek culture with the Greek name, and maybe he can help us. So they come and they're, they're looking for an audience with Jesus. But then the response of Jesus to them is very interesting. This is where the story, I think, gets very interesting because he doesn't really directly respond to them. He doesn't give them the audience that they're seeking. And initially, he doesn't even seem to acknowledge their request, but then he actually does answer their request. And so we'll look at that now. So in verse 23, Jesus answered them. They, they came and they told him, uh, you know, that they these Greeks wanted to see him. He answered them saying, the hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. So it's almost, you know, you could imagine being Philip and Andrew. They come and they say, Lord, uh, these Greeks are here and they, they want to see you. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. What does that mean? 
How, did, how does that correspond to what they were asking? Well, in a sense it didn't, but in another sense it did. This idea of the hour coming, this is something that again is exclusive to John's gospel. John records Jesus referring to this hour several times in his gospel. And when Jesus refers to this hour, he's referring to the specific time of his offering himself up as a sacrifice. This is the reason, the primary reason for which he has come into the world. So this is the time for the son of man to be glorified. And how is that going to happen? The next verse tells us, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus is speaking, this 24th verse, Jesus is talking about himself. This is what he is about to do. Just like a grain must, uh, of wheat must fall into the ground and it must die before it can bring forth a crop. Jesus is saying that that is what must happen to me. Now, remember that Jesus, his public ministry over these three years was pretty much exclusively to the, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He said that at a certain point. He said, I have not been sent to any, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So these people are from outside of Israel. But here in this 24th verse, Jesus is hinting at the fact that there's going to be an extension. There's going to be much fruit as a result of the grain falling into the ground and dying. And of course, he's speaking of what is going to happen to him. He is going to die. And as a result, he's going to bring life to many. So that's the answer that he initially gives them. But the answer is really, he's telling them what is about to happen. But then in the next verse, he does give an indirect answer to the Greeks, but he gives the answer really to all seekers. So this is where we see it goes beyond them and it comes to anyone who is a seeker. And what is the answer? The answer is this, he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, again, that's a bit of a strange answer, right? They want to have a meeting with Jesus. Jesus said, he who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. What is he saying? Well, the message of Jesus is first of all, this. The answer is not in finding yourself. That, that's what Jesus is saying. The first thing that we need to know when it comes to uh, discovering the truth or finding out what ultimate reality is, the first thing we need to know is we're not going to find it inside of ourselves. The message of Jesus is radically different on what life is all about. And the message of Jesus is always going to be pushing against the message that the world is offering. And we see that today, don't we? We see that the message of Jesus is pushing against that mentality in the culture that essentially uh, deifies self. So Jesus has a completely different way for men and women to discover the real purpose and joy of living. And it is not by loving your life, but by hating your life. Wow, that is a, a radical difference. Now, 
let's talk about those two things. Because Jesus here talks about losing your life ultimately, which is obviously a negative thing, and or keeping your life ultimately. Now, when Jesus says, if you love your life, you'll lose it. What, what does he mean by love your life? Well, this is what he means. He means to hold on to your perceived autonomy or independence, to hold on to your self-righteousness or self-sufficiency or self-determination or self-glory, to hold to that tenaciously, to, to say this is what life is. Jesus says, if that's the way you live life, if that's the way you think, you will lose your life in the end. In other words, everything will be taken from you. There will be nothing left. When Jesus says, if you hate your life, you will keep it. He simply means that you have given over the rule of your life to him to live for his will and purposes rather than living for your will and purposes. That's what it means. So the person who hates their life is a person who said, you know what? I am not going to live for myself. I'm not going to live for my own glory or my, for my own fulfillment. I am now surrendering my life to Christ. I'm going to live for him. That's the distinction that he's making. And so Jesus is saying here again, that if we try to save our lives, if we, and that, that's the way he puts it in another place. If, if you save your life, you'll lose it. If you say, no, my life is my life, God has no place in my life. He has no right over me, has no claim on me. I'm here to do my own thing. That's the person that loses in the end. But the person who says, no, actually, my life is a gift from God. My life is really to be offered up to him for his will and his purpose. That's the person who keeps their life to eternal life. Now, Jesus then goes on and he says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, and the idea here is, it, again, if anyone will serve me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, that's what he's talking about here, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Here's how we know if we're serving Christ, we are where he is and then he says this, if anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So once again, he's, he's laying out the kind of the cost of being a true uh, disciple. He says that we must follow him. And of course, as you continue to read on, where is he going? He says, I'm going to be lifted up. If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, coming back around to where we started with these Greeks. Sirs, we would meet Jesus, they said. Here's the question. Were these Greeks really seekers of truth? Or perhaps were they just curious? I think, based upon the response of Jesus, that you could build a case that they were more curious than anything else. 
that they were interested in Jesus as a teacher, perhaps, as a philosopher, a sage, as someone who could help them improve their lives a bit. I think really in the end, that's what's implied in the fact that Greeks came to Jesus. They, they were like their fellow countrymen, these particular ones. They were curious about Jesus. And they were wondering if Jesus could help them, if he could be of some benefit to them, if they, through following his teaching, could improve their lives, if they, if they through coming under his philosophy, could enhance their their wisdom, if they, through giving heed to his counsel, could find a more successful path in life. I think that's really what was behind their request. Therefore, Jesus didn't have that meeting with them, but he did indirectly tell them and us as well that we do not meet with him on those grounds. That's what they learned. They could not meet with him on those grounds. You see, he will not be your teacher. He will not be your counselor. He will not be your guide unless he is, first of all, your Lord. And this is the mistake that people are still making today. People want to come to Jesus because they see him as a means of improving their situation, whatever it might be. But you can't come to him on those grounds. Now, let me be clear. He certainly will improve your situation, but that cannot be the basis upon which you come to him. You have to come to him for who he is, and you have to receive him on his grounds, not on our grounds. Now, I cannot tell you the numbers of people that I have had personal conversations with over the years who have come looking to Jesus, kind of like these Greeks, seeking him, and they're, they're basically looking for help. Their marriage is finally falling apart completely. They've been doing their best to destroy it for decades, but now it's you know, it's come to the point of no return. So they come and they say, can Jesus help me put my marriage back together? And you know what I always tell those people? Well, he can, but he might not because that's not really the issue. The real issue is you and Jesus coming to terms. And then we can talk about your marriage and, and perhaps, you know, there will be a restoration, but maybe not. Maybe you, maybe you have just... Uh, irreversibly ruin the situation. But that doesn't change the need for you to know Christ. So this is the thing, especially in our day, where Jesus is, again, oftentimes seen as an addition to other things that is going to contribute to self-improvement. It's going to contribute to a more successful life. Jesus will not play that game. He will not participate with that. He will not meet with you or me or anyone else on those terms. We meet with him on his terms. And his terms are 
if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up the cross and follow me. Those are his terms. C.S. Lewis, he described his own conversion from atheism to belief in God. He described himself as the most reluctant convert in England. He said he came kicking and screaming into the kingdom. He did not want that to be the truth, but the evidence was so overwhelming, he couldn't deny it. And so he had to submit to it. And of course, in doing that, he would later write how that was the wisest and most wonderful decision he ever made. But, uh, but on the surface, it didn't necessarily seem that way because where the journey will take you if you're truly seeking truth is to a savior who died on a cross and says, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And so that's what Jesus is saying to the Greeks. And that's what he's saying to all seekers. If you wanna know the truth, then follow me. And so in closing, if you're seeking today, are you really seeking the truth? Or are you just on an adventure? Are you just on an endless journey? And at the end of the road, you're just going to say, well, you know, I searched and searched and searched. That's what I spent my life doing. Or are you going to follow the evidence? And even though it might lead you to the place that you didn't really want to come to because it's true. You're going to embrace it. You're going to embrace this teaching that's so counterintuitive to our nature and to the culture, the teaching that says that we must set ourselves aside and give our lives entirely to God. It's not about our own personal self-improvement. It's not about our own success and those kinds of things. If we're, if we're trying to come to Jesus for those reasons, we can't come. Not because he doesn't care about those things or he doesn't deal with those things, because he does. This is the interesting thing. Although we can't come to him on those grounds, of I want you know, some sort of self-betterment or improvement, what we find is that when we come to him on his grounds, that's what he does for us. We, we can't come to him and say, well, I'm just coming, you know, Jesus is just a means to an end. The end is I want a better life and Jesus is gonna get me there. Jesus says, no, you can't come. But when we come to Jesus for who he is, guess what he gives you? He gives you a better life. But he does it in the proper order so that the better life doesn't become a substitute for God and end up ruining our lives. He puts himself right there and he becomes the means through which all of that takes place. And so this is his word to the seeker. Deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Wow, that's amazing. Do we want the honor of men or do we want the honor of God? Like I said, you know, you can be a searcher, you can be a seeker, you can be a wanderer, and people will honor you. People will maybe even write books about you. You can don a robe and go, you know, wandering around the Himalayas, and people will even wonder if maybe you're a god or something like that. They'll honor you. You can have that, or you can have the honor of the only God, the true God. And he honors those who honor 
his son. He honors those who receive his son. Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled Confronting Jesus, Nine Encounters with the Hero of the Gospels by Rebecca McLaughlin. In our current climate of social injustice and sexual ethics, many today do not believe that Jesus has any relevance for today's culture. But what exactly does Jesus say about social injustice and sexual ethics? And in a world filled with moral atrocities, have you ever wondered what it means when people say that God is love? What does Jesus' love actually look like in everyday life in the 21st century? If you've ever wrestled with any of these questions or know someone who wants to know who Jesus is, you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book Confronting Jesus, Nine Encounters with the Hero of the Gospels by Rebecca McLaughlin is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we continue our series, Jesus Encounters. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.